Amen. Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 4, where we will pick up this warning at verse 38 and Luke through verse 44. Luke chapter 4, reading from verse 38, this is on page 860 of the church Bibles. And Jesus arose and left the synagogue in Capernaum and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they stood and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them in to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let us pray. O Lord our God, as we come now to study the Holy Word of God, we pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who inspired Luke as he wrote. We pray that he might help us to understand these words, to interpret these words, and that he might apply them to our hearts. Lead us now, we pray, to see our Lord Jesus more beautifully and grander than we've ever seen him before for it's in His name that we ask it. Amen. Well, the picture of Jesus that Luke has been painting so far in his gospel is a picture, we could say, of supremacy and power. It's a theme that's run through the entire gospel so far, hasn't it? The birth of Jesus, you remember, was framed in terms of the arrival of Jesus as great David's greater son, the long-promised almighty king who would free his people from all of their enemies and bring them, bring us, into a peaceful and restful kingdom. Even the way that that news was introduced was filled with motifs of heavenly grandeur, the word to Zechariah that his son would be the forerunner of the messianic king, came, you remember, within the temple. An evocative set, we could say, in which this drama was to play out, this, this message, this word to Zechariah coming to him within the symbolic palace of God upon earth, as Zechariah served within the temple at the altar of incense, that incense being the representation of the prayers of Israel rising as a pleasing aroma into the presence of God. We saw Gabriel appearing to Mary, this word of the incarnation coming to Mary through this great angelic emissary sent to her from heaven, telling this young girl that she was about to miraculously conceive, and that the child to be conceived within her was 
chapter 1, verse 32, to be called great, and even to be called the Son of the Most High. We've seen it in how Luke has mentioned the earthly rulers, whose shadows were cast long on the world into which Jesus was born. Caesar Augustus, the first revered emperor who was considered so powerful that he must be a God-man. Or Tiberius Caesar, who, as one historian put it rather bluntly, loyally and unimaginatively continued Augustus's policies. Tiberius continuing that system of oppression and repression, which, while securing that famous Pax Romana, did it through a system of forced submission, a Hitler's peace, as one man called it. No man or woman or boy or girl able to say a word against it without fearfully looking over their shoulders. Luke's told us about the governors who, has in, who have ensured conformity to the empire, even if it is through punitive and gratuitous things, like the census that took Joseph and Mary down to Bethlehem. He's told us about the high priests who have turned and twisted their offices into strongholds of personal power. All of it has stood as this dramatic backdrop designed to make the arrival of Jesus, the King of Kings, all the more evocative to our minds. We've seen it in how Luke has brought us to watch the beginning of Christ's public ministry, beginning, you remember, in the wilderness. We saw how Jesus stood mighty and powerful before that devil. This great one-on-one conflict as the devil tried to tempt Jesus to depart from the way that his Father had set for him tempting him to believe that that God was in reality cruel and withholding, and that there was a better and easier way for him to obtain the kingdom that his Father had promised to him. But yet Jesus, ever standing resolute in the face of these attacks, Jesus standing powerful and unwavering. We've seen it in the scenes that Luke has shown us in in Nazareth and Capernaum, the demon in Capernaum trying to silence Jesus and, and control Him, as we saw last week, but Jesus with only a word restraining Him and silencing Him. The furious crowd in Nazareth filled with hatred, trying to throw Jesus off a cliff, and Jesus, verse 30, simply passing through their midst. That's a, that's a captivating verse, isn't it? And we want to know so much more detail than we're given. How, how does Jesus free himself from the grip of this, of this lynch mob? How close does he get to the, to the precipice of the, the, the cliff? Does, do the crowd suddenly just all stand back, like the, like the soldiers at the Garden of Gethsemane? Do they fall back because of a heavenly power leading Jesus to simply walk through their divided midst? Or Or did the crowd in confusion suddenly lose track of Jesus and him able to just sneak away? But we're not told. All we're left is is with a statement that that really conveys power and supremacy over that situation, aren't we? We're simply told that Jesus just passed through their midst. 
All the way through, Luke has shown us this picture of Jesus that is, that is powerful, this picture of Jesus as a glorious king, a, a dominant king who remains absolutely unflinching in the face of evil, unthreatened by it, even as it draws close in upon him. Jesus, a king, we could even say, perhaps, who, who carries a, a, an unsettling composure, in the face of his enemies, unsettling because having seen him as powerful and as dominant as Lucas presented him, we begin to wonder, what kind of man is this? And do you remember that was the, the disciples' question on the, on the sea? They're threatened by the, by the waves coming into the boat. They're about to sink. They call out to Jesus, and, and Jesus stands, and He, and he rebukes the storm. And, as, and as, as my professor once said, that storm sits like a dog before its master. And what is it that the disciples say? They say to one another, what kind of man is this? They're, uns, they're unsettled, having having seen this glimpse of His power and His glory. And there's a sense, if we, if, we read this, if we read this thoughtfully, we're unsettled too, unsettled by the composure of, of, of Jesus in the face of His opponents, unsettled by how, how powerful and, and dominant is He is. And we might begin to question too, what kind of man is this? Or we might begin to wonder, what kind of reception would I receive from a man so powerful and dominant as, as this? Perhaps if we read this thoughtfully, we, we read it, and, and Romans 3 comes flooding into our, into our minds, that truth that we innately know that we're all unrighteous and sinners before God. You know that litany of psalms that Paul weaves together in, in Romans 3. No, none, is, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet is are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we know that Paul's not talking about them, he's talking about us, and, and innately we, we understand that Romans 3 is holding a mirror up for us to see our own sinfulness. And, and then we look at Jesus, and we see His power in the face of evil, and we realize our own evil, and we see this glorious dominance over the forces of darkness, and we, we see in Romans 3 our own darkness, and, and we might be led to begin to think, is He against me? Is this glorious and powerful and dominant King Jesus against me? Is that my relationship to Him? They simply face His justice to crumble before Him like the demons are, to stand like the devil, knowing that my end before Him is sure. The picture that, that Luke has painted of Jesus so far is, has been one almost of a 
transcendent Jesus. A, a picture of Jesus in which Revelation 1 is, is breaking through. You remember how John saw Jesus in, in Revelation 1? He says in, in the midst of this, the lamp stands. He saw one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. That is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. That's a terrifying Jesus. That's a vision of Jesus that made John, you remember, fall at his feet as though dead. And there's been glimpses of that here, hasn't there? Who, who is this man who, despite the ravages of starvation upon his body and mind, can still stand with with unwavering resolve, unflinching before the devil in the wilderness, and the composure to marshal Scripture in order to rebuke him with the sword of the Spirit. Who is this man who can stand undeterred by the cries of demons in the congregation and simply restrain and rebuke them with a, a word? Who is this man who can simply walk through a lynch mob and, and escape from the hands of those who would do him harm? It's a, a sobering thought. To consider the ascendancy of Jesus that has run through these four chapters to ask ourselves, can I ever really come before such a one as this? Knowing my evil, knowing my sin, can I really approach such a, a holy king? But it's, it's really to those questions that Luke now brings us to see the wonderful answer in these last scenes at the close of chapter 4. These scenes essentially repeat some of the things that we've just seen. We see Jesus again casting out demons, and related, we see Him healing those afflicted with diseases. Really, just a variation on a theme, Jesus' dominance of natural and supernatural evil. But there's a difference that appears here. There is now a distinct tenderness and kindness within Jesus towards those to whom He ministers. Up until now, there's been a certain sovereign detachment, we might call it, and what we've seen of, of Jesus. It's one of the ways in which His supremacy has been impressed uh, uh, upon us. His ministry has been like that that uh, the centurion describes in Matthew chapter 8. You remember his servant is sick, and he appeals to Jesus to come and, and help, but, but then he says, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. And, and he says, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to, to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and, 
to my servant, do this, and he does it. And what does Jesus say in response? Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. The centurion got it. He was, he was right. He understood that Jesus carries this, this power in his speech. That he's able to command from a, from a distance. And it's what we've seen, isn't it? This sovereign dignity in the, in the distance of, of Jesus from the object of his actions. His, his ministry up until now been one of, of preaching and proclaiming the Word incarnate, reordering creation by his very words. But now Jesus' posture changes, his, his deportment changes. He comes in close now to the people that he heals. He lays his hands, verse 40, on every one of those who comes to him sick with their various diseases. Every one of them that, that comes to him seeking relief from this natural evil that has come upon them in their diseases. Jesus does not just speak and, and, and rebuke the, the disease to, to flee from them, but he, he touches them as he heals them. As he comes to Simon's mother-in-law and and heals her, he, he stands over her. Not as the centurion understood to be him to be able to, not, not just rebuking it from afar, from, from outside the house, but, but coming in, coming to her, coming near her in her distress as he heals her of her life-threatening fever. The powerful and transcendent Jesus is now presented as an imminent Jesus. The power that he wields, not wielded only against his foes, but the power that he wields, Luke wants to show us, now wielded distinctly for his people. Jesus is in and among these people, close to them, personal with them. He is kind and tender towards them. The, the hard word of rebuke given to the demons, but kind touch given to the afflicted. And you see what Luke is doing. With these scenes, Luke is, is reassuring us. Luke is coming close to us and reassuring us that in Jesus, there's not a choice to be made between transcendence and imminence. There's not a choice to be made between authority and gentleness. There is not a choice that, that needs to be made between the holiness of God and the mercy of God, but He is showing us that, that they are combined within Christ. They are woven together within Him. But even more than that, Luke is bringing us here into Simon's house and out to the crowds to show us really how all of this works for the people of God. Having shown us the glories of the King, having shown us the the transcendence of the king. Luke now brings us in to show us, we could say, the dynamics of his kingdom. And what he wants us to see is that the outward face of that kingdom is unflinching and immovable before his enemies, but the inward face of that kingdom is one that is distinctly tender and merciful. 
That Jesus is harsh and he is unflinching and he is immovable in the face of his enemies. But Jesus is gentle and he is kind towards those who come to him and cast themselves upon him in faith and dependence. And that really is the very heart of this, isn't it? What's, what's the difference between what we have just seen and what we now see? It is that, that those who find him tender and kind are those who acknowledge their weakness, who acknowledge their need of him, and who come to him in humility. Those who have been faced in this chapter with a dangerous Christ have been those who have stood against Him, resolved that they would oppose Him and oppose the kingdom that He has come to establish. To them, they have received a distinctly dangerous Jesus, a certain danger that has come with the promise that they will not be able to stand against Him in the last analysis, that there is a sure and certain judgment coming towards Him, and there is no chance of escape. The enemies of Christ have seen that Psalm 2 Jesus that will smash them like a, like a clay pot is smashed with a, a rod of iron. There has been no question in this chapter so far that Jesus will be supreme over His enemies, and what they encounter is a dangerous Jesus. But to those who come before Him cognizant of their need, to those who come before Him aware that, to use the words of Isaiah 61 that, that Jesus preached from in, in Nazareth, aware that they are captive and in need of emancipation, aware that they are blinded in their sin and in need of sight, aware that they are oppressed and in need of liberation, to them who come to Jesus and cast themselves wholly upon Him in humble faith and dependence, the Christ that they encounter is one that is wholly tender and kind-hearted. A Christ who looks upon them with eyes of compassion, a Christ who moves towards them with hands of reassurance, a Jesus that draws near to them in their affliction and heals them and restores them. What Luke is showing us is, to, to paraphrase a, a friend of mine, Luke is telling us that unless we come to Jesus on our knees, we cannot come at all but He's also showing us that when we come to Jesus on our knees, knees, we will find Him gentle and lowly in heart. We will find a Jesus who is not opposed to us in our sin, but one who says to us, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When we come to Him in humility and dependence, we find a King who has compassion on the weak and wounded and upon the sick and sore. A King who opens the door of His kingdom for those who have come to Him seeking salvation. A King who brings us inside the walls 
into a place of safety, into a place of healing, into a place of restoration, so that we can find within the walls of His kingdom freedom and, and life, that we can find rest and peace and wholeness and joy and satisfaction, knowing that He is the one, that He is the King who stands on the walls. More than that, that He is the King who has gone out to wage war against and wholly defeat all those and everything that would afflict us. It's an invitation, isn't it? It's an invitation to see our weakness and our need. An invitation to see how we have been taken captive by sin. Not perhaps taken captive by demons like these poor people here, but, but essentially the same predicament. The Romans 6 captivity. Remember the dynamic there. Paul says, you are slaves of the one you obey. If you obey sin, then you are a slave of sin. He says, captive, bound by it. But when we come to Christ, He breaks that dominion. Or to use the imagery here, He, he casts it out with a, a, a word, with His tender and kind hand of assurance upon us. And He makes us whole, and He makes us new, and He makes us, Romans 6, now joyfully His servants like Simon's mother-in-law. What does she do when she's healed? What does she do when she receives the kind mercy of Jesus Christ? What does she do when she receives her, her restoration? She serves Christ. It's the, it's the reflex of her heart, released from the life-threatening fever, released from that grip of death upon her. Her instinct now is to serve Jesus and Luke is saying, that's it. That's a, that's a model of our new life. That's the economy of this kingdom that Jesus is establishing. A kingdom that is wholly terrifying for the opponents of King Jesus. A kingdom ruled and dominated by a king of, of cosmic authority, to use a, a phrase, a kingdom into which no foe can ever follow and against which no traitor can ever stand. But Luke is saying, believer, Christian, this kingdom is against them, but it's for you. Jesus is against them, but He is for you. That power and dominion and supremacy of Jesus that is to strike terror into the hearts of His enemies is the same dominion and supremacy of Jesus that is to reassure and anchor your hearts. Now, you might hesitate. Perhaps that image that we began with still looms large in your mind and your hearts. Like, like Martin Luther, you, you tremble whenever you consider the almighty glory of, of Jesus Christ. Your minds are filled with memories of how you've sinned against Him. Your stomach is gripped when you think about your own prideful heart and how you have kicked against his crown rights like the Nazarenes. 
Your heart breaks when you think about how, like these demons, you've, you've tried to control Jesus for your own ends. Remember we said last week that devil in Capernaum, he uses the most theologically accurate name of Jesus that he could muster as he tries to name him and compartmentalize him and control him. And, and maybe you've done the same. You've delved into theology. You've given time over to the study of, 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 of theology and, and Christology, but you know in your heart, not really because you wanted to know Him and worship Him more, but, but so that you could understand Him and put Him in a little box and manipulate Him and control Him. Maybe like these demons, you've tried to master Jesus as if to get Him to provide for you what you really want, to make Him your servant and not the other way around. And you look at this and you wonder, can this really be for me? But doubter, look at how wonderfully universal these scenes are. One commentator called this wholesale healing, purposefully indiscriminate. It happened in Simon's house. It happened in the house of one who is about to be called as one of the twelve disciples. But it also happened, apparently, verse 40, just out in the open air amongst the Ennies. It happened in Capernaum, and it was to be declared throughout all of the towns and in all of Judea. What unites all those who receive the tenderness and kindness of Christ? What is it that, that is the same running theme throughout all of them, apostle or any Capernaumite or Judean? Simply that they came to Him. Simply that knowing their weakness and their need, they came and they did not chafe against His rule and they did not rebel against Him and they didn't kick against what He was preaching, but that they came knowing their need and cast themselves upon Him in faithful dependence. That's it. That's it, Luke's saying. You can be sure that amongst them, they were poor and rich. They were powerful and insignificant believer, doubter. They were immoral and moral. But all of them came, and they cast themselves upon Jesus. And when they did so, they found this glorious King to be to them kind and gentle and merciful and gracious, the power of the King, not against them, but for them. What is it that Jesus says in John 6, 37? Inscribe this verse on the four of your minds. Whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. That's what Luke wants us to see as he brings this chapter to a close. He's brought us to see the supremacy of Jesus. He's brought us to get glimpses of that revelation one Jesus. 
this powerful, mighty king before whom we tremble, but he wants us to see that the heart of this almighty king is a heart that is dreadful, opposed to his enemies, but a heart that is kind, wholly kind, towards all those who cast themselves upon him. Let's pray.